The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, guys, let's take our seats and grab your Bibles, please, and open them to Galatians chapter 3. Sorry, Galatians 2. Galatians chapter 2. Before we begin our study, I do want to start with prayer. Um, There are just several families that have just caught a bug, and we want to pray for them and uh, and just ask God to encourage them and um, heal them. And as well for those who are either traveling or uh, have family in town and weren't able to make it work this morning, we want to just pray that they're also encouraged and then uh, pray for our time in God's Word. So would you, would you pray with me? Father, we humble ourselves now knowing that we are in desperate need of, of Word and truth and the, the difficulties of the week um, and the trials we face and the adversity we face has beaten us down and uh, the doubt and the struggles even within our own heart have discouraged us and so I, I pray that this morning would be encouraging as we as we feast on truth and, and glory in the gospel of Christ we pray Lord for those who are not here that they too would feast on your word that they would have the 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 encouragement that comes from reading and studying and listening to the preached word. They would pray over the word and that they would be encouraged in their faith. And as their bodies are, are weak or fighting sicknesses, Lord, that they would be strengthened in soul even as you are healing and strengthening their body. For those who desire to gather but uh, were not able to make it, Lord, we pray they too would be encouraged. Would you move in their hearts in such a way that they would not only know that you love them and that we love them, uh, but they would share the love of Christ with others around them. And we pray, God, for those who have not gathered out of sin or neglect, the shame in their heart or the sin they hide, would you lovingly, gently rebuke that and demonstrate through the, the calling of a friend or the providential running into of a, of a brother or sister in a conversation God, in, in whatever your mysterious ways would be to remind them of their need of you, your love of them, and the help of your word in church. We ask all of this, as always, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I don't often, when I'm preaching, talk about preaching. Um, It can be a bit ugly, learning how the sausage is made. Um, Sometimes hours spent 
trying to answer a question that is obscure and minute and something only pastors and preachers tend to find those sorts of joy and delights in. However, this text did pose a challenge this week, and I, I hope to sort of share and articulate ultimately why a text like this is important as we read it in Galatians 2. But the more that I read Paul's letters, uh, there's something unique in the experience of Paul that I think is shared and felt only by teachers and pastors and, and leaders within the church. Not that his words couldn't be understood, but that there is a situational sort of commonality that pastors like myself or John, preachers who take and labor in God's word for the sake of God's church, feel with Paul. Remember, Galatians is a, is a letter written to a church that is abandoning the gospel. They're in danger of damning themselves by rejecting the gospel which promises to save. And you can hear Paul's laboring and his pleading with them that they not abandon the gospel. Not simply because the gospel is true, but because he loves the churches in Galatia. He wants the truth of the gospel to be made known and to work in such a way that saves these brothers and sisters in the faith. And he hears accounts and stories of how they are in danger of losing that precious gift that would secure for them eternal salvation. And so I know something of what it feels like to want to plead and labor with people to know and believe that gospel. And so my prayer for foundation and my concerns for foundations as well as John's and Jake's and hopefully every pastor of any church would be that of Paul's for the churches of Galatia here in our letter. Really, there's two primary areas of responsibility that I think as a pastor and as a preacher, a minister of God's word, that we are to undertake for you. The first is the work of justification delivered to you through the gospel of Christ. We want, more than anything, for your soul to be secure in the hands of God. Not under condemnation, but it is my prayer for foundation that those who come hear the, the teaching and the preaching of God's word and would be justified by their faith in response to that. That there isn't a question of where their soul stands in relation to God. It stands justified. But there's a second burden pastors and shepherds feel for the body, not just that they would be saved, but that then their lives would also bear the shape of the cross as they live. And so we want to see sinners justified, but also then live lives of obedient joy and joyful obedience to the glory of God. So it's not just enough for me to make sure that you'll be in heaven when you die. It is also the pastor's job to help you live 
until you die in a way that is joyfully obedient to God's word for his glory. And so that's where we're headed in our study this morning, to take a look at those two responsibilities, because that's at the heart of the conflict here in Galatia. That's precipitated by a distortion of the gospel that says you have to earn salvation by affirming and obeying the law of Moses. Namely, you have to be circumcised and you have to keep certain dietary restrictions. If you want to be a Christian, you essentially have to be a Jew. So the argument goes. And that, for Paul, was a dangerous damnable distortion of the gospel, which he preached to the churches in Galatia. And so in the first two chapters so far, we've seen that he has demonstrated that his authority did not rest on the affirmation of the other apostles. He does not claim authority for himself on the basis of his own work, but that he, Paul, was called and set apart by God, that he had a personal and a real encounter with Christ, the resurrected Lord, who told him to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, the power of salvation for those who would believe. So he speaks of his authority and he defends his ministry, that he didn't receive his ministry from other men, but that he received the ministry from Christ. And so this is really the basis of his argument, that Paul has authority to speak, not because he himself is authoritative, but because he has been commissioned by Christ to speak for him. He is an apostle and a servant of Christ, not of men. He was set apart by God for this purpose. So there's a formal principle at play when you build the foundation of Paul's argument that the authority with which he speaks comes from Christ. And therefore the words he says, the gospel he preaches, is to be adhered to closely without division or distortion. And so he's here in our text, as we'll read, beginning to make some closing arguments, as it were, in the first part of his letter, a defense of his authority in the gospel. So what we're going to do is view briefly Paul's articulation of justification, which I'll define for you in just a moment, and his answers to three objections that were swirling around the debate here about justification in the gospel. And then when we do that afterwards, we'll consider then how the doctrine of justification by faith enables you and I as Christians to achieve his purposes for our lives. Remember, the goal of Paul for the churches in Galatians and my goal for you is that you would understand and and receive the joy of justification and walk faithfully, obediently, and joyfully as justified Christians for the glory of God. So we'll then consider 
from Paul's articulation of justification and his answering to three objections, how the doctrine of justification by faith enables us to live out the purposes of our lives which he has for each one of us. So the issue is one, as I said, of justification. And justification means to be declared righteous. That's what the debate is all about. How is man saved? There's no debate about whether man is sinful and needing saving, but whether man can be saved by his own merit or in some combination of merit, work, and faith and grace, or, as Paul would argue, by faith alone. Now, I know that some 500, 600 years later, we take for granted justification by faith. And most of you here are not tempted to adhere to dietary restrictions of the Mosaic Law or go and get circumcised or take some other obscure Mosaic Law and use it. So it may seem that we don't need to spend as much time on the definition of justification by faith alone because we have a rich Protestant history of that doctrine baked into our DNA and therefore the dangers in Galatia are not the dangers we face. But the dangers are just a manifestation of the central problem which is the question of how we are saved in the first place. And the central question beyond that is how we are saved, whether it's dependent upon us or not. And so this isn't just theologians quibbling over semantics. This is not a theologizing or a making of a mountain out of a molehill. This is a central tenet of our faith. It speaks to the very heart of the gospel itself. And it's immensely relevant to your life today as a Christian. Because the implications of the doctrine of justification by faith, they're life-altering, as we'll see. So we'll turn our attention to, to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Now, we're here in the middle of Paul's opposition to Peter. Peter went to Antioch. Apparently, when Paul was there, he took Titus and Barnabas, and they fought off the, the, the opposition, the circumcision party, who demanded Titus be circumcised, and they together fought that off. And Paul said something to Peter, you know, you, you really ought to come up to, to Antioch and, and see the Gentiles' believers having dinner and fellowship with the other Jewish believers. It's, it's exactly what we're talking about here. And Peter, he comes. He goes, and when he gets there, he begins to participate in this beautiful picture of the gospel. He's having table fellowship with Gentiles, which as a Jew would be unthinkable. And he knows that just a short while ago, this would have never happened in his life. In Acts chapter 10, he gets a, a revelation, a vision from the Lord who says to, to go to the Gentiles. And he, as a good Jew, said, no, 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 that's, that's not what we're supposed to do, Lord. And God says, no, I've made them clean. So Peter begins to understand, and now in Galatians, he goes to Antioch and he shares fellowship with them. And some men from James come, the circumcision party, and somehow convince Peter to withdraw himself from the other Gentiles. And he breaks the unity 
that the Jew and the Gentile in Antioch had in Christ. He effectively demands by that withdrawal that they become more like him. Now the reasons for his doing this are not clear other than we see that he was fearful. But he led others astray, the other Jews that were there, but even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. And so Paul he had to confront Peter and he had to confront him openly. And he tells him, you're, you're living hypocritically. You, you don't obey these laws. You're a Jew, but you, you live like a Gentile. You freed yourself from the law. So how can you then return back to this and then make the case by your actions, whatever your belief is on paper, that Gentiles now have to live like Jews if you yourself don't even? So verse 15 is really a continuation of that confrontation and it really blends seamlessly into sort of the material principle of the gospel and of the letter here of Galatians into the substance of the gospel itself in chapters 3 and 4 the theology portion of the text so let's read them and pick up 15 he says we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, none will be justified. But if in our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul's argument here is that Peter has made a grave error in his withdrawing of table fellowship with the Gentiles. And what's at stake here, Paul recognizes, is not simply the unity of the church, though it is, but is the gospel itself Primarily, it's understanding that central question of how we are to be justified. Is it by works of the law, as the Judaizers would teach, circumcision, the moral teachings, the dietary restrictions, the religious exemptions, or is it by faith and grace, as Paul would teach? Now, the argument against Paul was that he was he was doing away with the law completely. The Jews were fearful that this body of text, this divine revelation that the Old Testament is, the law is to God's people, would be thrown away and resigned to the ash heap of history because now grace has come and has done away with the law. And they were fearful of losing not simply what God had delivered, but their heritage and their faith and their identity. And so they thought, well, in order to continue in what God's been teaching us about Christ, to build on what Christ has done, it must include and preserve somehow 
God's word in completion, including the law. And so they wrongly understood that the law was to still be binding on Christians. And so they imposed laws and regulations on others, particularly the Gentiles. And so this is what Paul is pushing back against. Now there's going to be more later in Galatians and in other writings like Romans especially, where Paul deals at length with the law. And we'll have time to get into that later. But here what he does is just briefly do two things. He declares the doctrine of justification, and then he defends the doctrine of justification. He pushes back against the the wrongful teaching and distortion that the gospel hitches us in a way to the law that binds us according to its commands as Christians. He pushes back and declares the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then he defends the doctrine of justification by three objections we'll see in the text. So first, consider the doctrine of justification declared there in verses 15 and 16. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now the word here, Gentile sinners, is used in a limited sense. It's not to say that Jews weren't sinners. They understood themselves to be sinners. But that they had the advantage of being born in the commonwealth of Israel. They had the advantage of having the law. They had the oracles of God and they were raised and reared up in the sacred writings of Scripture under the tutelage of Moses, and they indeed had a great advantage over the Gentiles. Primarily, they understood anyone outside of the covenant household of God's people to be sinners. And so this would be something akin to saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not those dirty dogs. It's kind of like a put down for anyone who's not really a Jew because they didn't have the privilege or the fortune of being born a Jew. So he says, We know that we're Jews and have the advantages of God's revelation to us from his servants Moses and David and all of the prophets. And not like those Gentiles who were born not under the law, but outside of it. The godless and those to be pitied. Those unfortunate. This is a bit of irony, of course, he plays here because Paul's heart is for those. He says then in verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He says we know it. We've already agreed on this, Peter, in Jerusalem. That's verses 11 through 14. We know that a person is not justified, declared righteous, before God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we know this, so we have believed in Him in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He reiterates, because the works of the law, we will not be justified. So the declaration of justification by faith is made in two parts. First, he declares it negatively. That is, how we are not justified 
He says, we are not justified by works of the law. In the Greek, the article, the, is not there. We are not justified by works of law. We will not merit salvation, justification, by obedience to commands. Here, specifically, he's thinking of the law of Moses. But it goes much further beyond that. Any commands of men, even if they come from God, if they're under the wrong covenant with which God had entered into but now is replaced and fulfilled in Christ under the new covenant is not binding in the same way and in the same manner. We are not justified by works of the law. It means you can try to obey the scripture all you want. Your obedience to the letter of the law will not justify you. That is the claim put negatively. But then there's a positive claim. We are justified negatively, not by the works of law, positively, but through or by faith in Christ. So he, he's just declaring, articulating the gospel of justification. How are people saved? Not by works of law, not by, by obeying commands of Scripture, not by what's doing what's told in Scripture, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in Christ. Or otherwise, he puts it, we have believed in Christ Jesus. There is a faith and a belief that has at its core a trust in the work of Christ, who is the Son of God, who lived perfectly on earth, and who suffered a death for our sin, a trust, a belief, and a confidence in that work that saves us. And that's what Paul means here by faith. We are justified by faith in Christ. So he just merely states the doctrine. Not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Now, again, I mentioned we take this for granted because we have several centuries of Protestant doctrine we stand on. And praise God for that. That this truth was recovered over 500 years ago. And it has been defended from attack day in and day out, year in and year out. And even today there are opponents of this doctrine, clear in Scripture, that we are not saved by works of law, but by faith in Christ. And it's incumbent upon us Christians to know this doctrine intimately. Do you see how that's the most central question about the gospel you can answer? How are we saved? If Jesus dies for my soul, how do I receive the benefit of that atonement? How am I going to be declared righteous? What do I have to do? The answer to that question means everything. If the answer to the question is, here are 360 commands of Scripture to obey perfectly, and then you will be righteous. Or even, here's the one command in Scripture to obey, and then you'll be declared righteous. Paul says, is a distortion of the gospel. The gospel of Christ teaches us that we are justified not by any work of any law, not by the doing of any command, but by faith, and faith alone in Christ a trusting, a believing on Christ.
Well, that's just the doctrine of justification declared. He places it negatively, not by works of the law, positively, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes immediately and begins to answer the objections that have been swirling around the debate there. And there are three objections here in the rest of the text. The first objection we see in verses 17 and 18. Notice the objection here. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Or your translation may write, is Christ then a minister of sin? The objection here is that justification by faith, this doctrine that Paul is peddling, that it's not earned or received by works of the law, but only by faith, actually makes Christ a servant of sin. That's the objection to justification by faith alone. That this doctrine makes Christ a servant of sin. We could hear the argument this way. Paul's opponents would say, well, listen, Paul, if following Christ means that you, you no longer submit to the law, God's word for salvation, well, then you are actually sinning because you'll fail to obey the law. When you reject and refuse the law, as Paul is teaching, then you'll fail to obey it and therefore sin. And if you're following Christ and you do that, then Christ effectively becomes a minister of sin because he is the one who leads you into disobedience. So the, the argument is, if Jesus says, follow me and believe in me, and by faith alone you'll be justified, then he's causing you to sin. You get the argument here, the objection? By preserving the law, they think they're honoring Christ. And by preaching a doctrine of justification by faith, they think you make Christ out to be a minister of sin. Effectively, they say you become no better than those Gentile sinners who have no law. What's Paul's answer to that objection? Well, he says, certainly not. It's emphatic. May it never be. It's impossible to conceive of Christ ever being a minister of sin. And beyond that, that the gospel of Christ would ever be distorted in such a way that he would be. Rather, Paul is arguing that the gospel fulfills the law. Jesus' own teaching tells us that. Not that he has abolished it, but has fulfilled the law. And the gospel doesn't dismiss the law as something worth throwing away, but transforms the law as we'll see in a few chapters later. But the gospel has come in fulfilling the law, and so Paul's argument here in verse 18 is this. No, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What's he saying? He says, because the gospel has come to fulfill the law, it would be sin to return to the law and come back under it. So the opponents have it backwards. In other words, he could say it like this, it would be a sin not to follow Christ over the law of Moses. So the answer to the objection ultimately is to say the gospel frees you from the commands to obey perfectly and righteously all things in Scripture. 
It doesn't free us from the responsibility to learn, teach, and follow in the wisdom and the path of righteousness it lays out for us, but as a command to covenant members, it is no longer binding. We are, indeed, under a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And, of course, this doesn't mean that we behave lawlessly, but it simply means that because we're not slaves to the law, we are free to walk faithfully in light of the teachings of the law, not as ones who command and obey righteousness, but ones who live righteously in obedience to the law of grace, not the law of Moses. So the argument here is you would be returning back to a building you tore down so that you can live in it when the new building that was put in its place was bigger, better, and safer. This would be like going to live in a doghouse when your mansion is next to it. Why would you return to something that does not save you? In fact, to do so is not simply ludicrous. In this case, it is sin. He says, if I rebuild what I had already torn down, and I'm found to be a sinner. Again, the irony there of those Gentile sinners. If we're found to be outside of the law, like those say we are, we actually become a transgressor. Because indeed, we are out from under the law. And yet, we're under grace. And to go back under the law would be a sin and an error. So the first objection that justification by faith makes Christ a servant of sin, he emphatically denies and says Christ, far from being a servant of sin, leads us into righteousness by fulfilling the law. And it's a sin to go back under it, which he freed us from. Two questions to consider in light of this objection and Paul's answer. First, have you yet torn down the stronghold of works righteousness in your life? Have you torn that, that old structure down that says you have to obey and do right before you can be saved? Is that structure in your life still standing or have you torn it down with the sledgehammer of the gospel? Friends, it is no sin and Christ is no servant of sin if you choose to live in the free and abundant grace of God through faith. I wonder if you've torn down the strongholds of work righteousness in your life. And if you have, Christian, the question then would become, have you been tempted or have you gone to rebuild those strongholds of works righteousness in your life? There is a temptation to go back to the way things were, to trust in our own strength, to rebuild the strongholds of works righteousness so that we can have some boasting even a little bit, about our own work. Have you rebuilt the stronghold of works righteousness in your life? Well, Paul would have us know that to go back to such a structure which has been torn down would be sin. We would indeed be trespassing against the law of grace, which has come to replace and fulfill the law of Moses. So the first objection was flatly, Deny. There's a second objection here in verses 19 through 20. He says, 
For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So inherent in this verse is another objection, namely, without obeying the commands of the law, so the argument goes, you cannot live righteously with God. Without obeying the commands, how can you be righteous? How can you live before God if you don't do what he's told you to do? You can see how this is an extension of the first objection, that you need the law of Moses to be saved. The, the answer he gives here is that in verse 19, you must, in fact, die to the law in order to live to God, not remain under it. In fact, it is the law which leads you to die to it so that you would live to God. If the concern is living righteously before God, you have to follow the evidence of the law, which is to die to it so that you can then live for God. In other words, Paul's answer to this objection is that real obedience and righteousness can come only from Christ and not the law. To be united to Christ is to die to the law. It's the only way that righteousness comes. Before Christ, the law was how you were righteous with God and lived with God. But since Christ has come, the law no longer functions as how you are made righteous before God, but rather Christ is. And so the law points to Christ who points to his own righteousness, who gives to you that grace, and therefore you have to die to the law that you might live to God. If you try to keep yourself under the righteous law, burden, burdensome and commanding on your soul, then you will never truly be righteous and alive to God. That's, that's the objection. You need the law to live righteously. In other words, what Paul answers is that the law leads us to Christ first by leading us to our own condemnation before God. A right and proper reading of the law will, will reveal to us that we're sinners in need of God's grace and that it points us to Christ itself. We are under condemnation if we think we can obey the law. We have sinned before a holy and righteous God who demands justice and because Christ has come, we must then, in order to throw ourselves upon grace, die to the law, it says. Look in verse 20, the parallel. By dying with Christ, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. So dying to the law means to be crucified with Christ. You're united to Christ, identifying with him in his death. You die to the law by dying with Christ in order that you may live with God Again, in verse 20, the parallel would be so that Christ would live in us. Through the law, we die to the law that we might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You can see the argument then Paul makes. In order to truly be righteous, it is not through obedience to the law, but through Christ. And to receive the obedience and the righteousness of Christ, it is necessary we die to the law. 
He speaks about this at length in Romans 6 and 7. Let me just quote Romans 7, 4 to you. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, namely to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the greater argument he makes over in Romans chapter 7. So by living under the law, you belong to the law, but by dying to Christ, you belong. Dying to the law, you belong to Christ, to him who God raised from the dead, in order that you would bear fruit for God. That's the path of righteousness. So what Paul is really describing here is this radical new identity of justified sinners who have died to the law and have been made alive together in Christ by faith. He says two things that are radical to Jewish ears. First, that Christ lives in me. Meaning Christ's work is so manifest in the believer that it is Christ and his identity that has superseded the identity of the Christian. Or to put it another way, Jesus and the Christian are one. Now this isn't a mystical Eastern religion. This is what Jesus prays in the garden in John 17. That the disciples would be one and that he and the disciples would be one. Or in John 15, that he would abide in them as they abide in him. And it's just as Jesus and the Father are one, and as Jesus and the disciples are one, we would be one. Thus the analogy of the body of Christ makes perfect sense. To separate the head from the body would be to split the body in two. But there's a union shared with the head and the other members of the body. Christ lives in me. Not only this, but his spirit, John 14 and 16, has been sent to indwell us. And so as believers, we have a very real presence of God. He lives within us through the power of the Spirit. But he says also of this new identity of justified sinners, not only that Christ lives in me, but also the life I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. We'll speak about what that means in just a moment. But this is the kind of life we've been called to live. Dead to sin and the law and alive to Christ. We live as one who walks and talks for Christ in the world. Our identity is in Christ, both positional and relational. Christ lives in me and I live by faith in him. And so Christians are called to live out this radical identity of our justification. And so Paul speaks to the, to, to the objection that without the law you can't be righteous and says, Christ is the source of righteousness. And if you die to sin and you are made righteous by faith in Christ, then you can obey and be faithful and joyful in all the commands that God gives you as you live wisely, prudently, faithfully before him. The third and final objection here is there at the end of verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
I do not nullify the grace of God. This is the objection, that the doctrine of justification nullifies or voids the grace of God by rejecting that law which God had graciously given to the Jews for their holiness. This is, this is the argument. Paul, when you say justification is by faith alone and you don't need to obey the law, what you're doing is rejecting and nullifying God's grace. God gave us this word. Are you saying that God didn't know what he was doing? That he made a mistake? That's the underlying assumption here. That you're rejecting and nullifying the grace of God by preaching this justification by faith nonsense because he gave it to us for our holiness. That's what it says. And so the objection there is answered this way. I do not nullify the grace of God because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He goes right to the heart of the matter. God gave you the law, yes, but he also sent Jesus to die. And if the law could save you, then Jesus died for nothing. So either God made a mistake in sending Jesus, or you're making a mistake in misunderstanding the law. Justification, he says, by faith does no such thing. Instead of nullifying the grace of God, it upholds the grace of God. And it does that by securing our holiness, not in our own obedience to a law, but in the death of Christ. It is Jesus' death which secures for us our holiness. That is the fullest measure of God's grace by which we are to obtain holiness and righteousness. Not the law, which was given for a specific purpose at a specific time. If we think that's not true, then Jesus has died in vain. Christ's death secures for us what the law could not do. Or as Paul would say later in Romans, Jesus did what the law could not do. Otherwise, Christ dies in vain. What are the argument here? It's that works righteousness actually robs Christ of the efficacy of the cross. The cross accomplishes for us our salvation and is our means of justification. And when we say, no, we have to earn in some measure, large or small, our justification through our obedience to the commands of Scripture elsewhere in the Old Testament, we are actually robbing Christ of the efficacy of the cross. We're saying the cross didn't accomplish all of the things we needed to do. The law and our obedience to it actually accomplishes it. But you can see who a God which is jealous for his glory would not have it that way. Indeed, I think what Paul really is arguing here is that works righteousness makes God out to be a fool. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he makes the argument that the crucifixion of Jesus, far from being foolishness, is God's wisdom. It is how he shows himself wise over the arrogant and prideful of the world. And if that is God's wisdom, and you think that he's died for nothing, you've called God a fool. And I don't think I'd want to be among the people. So Paul is here just excoriating works righteousness by saying, you follow that path, not only do you come against God, but you speak against the cross. So the objections here against justification were answered 
and defended by Paul. And so now I think we can return and sort of formulate a Christian understanding of doctrine of the doctrine of justification according to Paul's teaching. We can ask the question, what does justification by faith, according to Paul, then look like? I think there's two things that happen in justification. One, sin is forgiven. You, you receive a pardon for your sin. When you've been justified, that is, objectively declared righteous by your faith, your sins are genuinely forgiven, pardoned you receive a not guilty verdict by God because Christ suffered the penalty of a guilty verdict for you on the cross. So what happens is the righteousness of Christ's account is credited to yours. We read in Romans 4, when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, counted to him as righteousness. The balance sheet of Abraham's life was in a deficit. He credited righteousness Paid in full. Because of our sin, the balance sheet of our lives before God was in the negative. We owed God what we could never pay, and we were under condemnation. But the death of Jesus and our believing in the efficacy of that work, in the power of his death, and in the truth of his resurrection means that our balance no longer negative, and not just brought up to zero, but fully given the righteousness of Christ. It counts as our own. That is how we are able to be forgiven. Christ's penalty for our sin pardons all of our iniquities. We receive forgiveness. The second thing that happens, though, is that we are also given His righteousness and empowered to live righteously in faith. So we receive forgiveness of sin, and we receive or are clothed with the righteousness of Christ to obey. So justified sinners not only have Christ's righteousness credited to their account, but directly imputed into them as one with Christ. They walk in faithfulness. They possess the Spirit. They have the ability to deny temptation and sin. They are clothed and covered by the righteousness of Christ. Paul puts it this way later, that you become a new creation. It's not just that you are rich when you were poor, but you are now an altogether new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. So you have been born again, as Jesus would tell Nicodemus. So according to Paul, justification by faith means that you are forgiven of your sins, not because you've earned it by obeying a law or a command of Scripture, but because you've believed in Christ's perfect righteousness. And just like Abraham, who believed and was counted righteous, so we who believe and believe alone are counted righteous. Notice Abraham was counted righteous before he ever obeyed the command of Scripture of God to circumcise. He believed and was counted righteous. So are we to believe and be counted righteous. And so at the end of the day, justification is the true basis of our holiness. That's the argument that is made against Paul, that you can't be righteous before God. You have to earn yourself justification. You have to keep yourself justified by obeying. And Paul's saying, no, justification by faith alone is the true basis of our holiness because it leads us to Christ. He says elsewhere, Ephesians chapter 2, you know the passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith, period. That's the end of it. By grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Well, how clear he could be. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For, because, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So we were saved, justified by faith, not by works. We can't boast of anything we've ever done. It was a gift of God that we would believe in the first place and receive justification by Christ. And therefore, that's the basis of our sanctification and true holiness. Not our law keeping, not our commandment, but our justification by faith alone. He says we were justified because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works to walk in them. So how should we embrace the truth of justification by faith in order that we may, as I mentioned earlier, live lives of faith marked by obedient joy and joyful obedient to the glory of God? What does this precious doctrine of justification look like in the lives of Christians today? Three really quick things. First, Christians who are justified by faith are to live in peace with God through faith. Live in peace with God through faith. Romans chapter 1 Chapter 5, verse 1. Since therefore you have been justified by faith. He just made the argument about Abraham in chapter 4. Since you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And so live in that peace with God in Christ. He'll go on later to say in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have real peace with God. Who were enemies with God under condemnation now has peace. Now not under condemnation. He'll go on in Romans chapter 5 to talk about the hope we have in glory. He'll talk about the grace we have to receive when we fall and fail. He'll talk about our purpose because we have peace with God. We've been reconciled and now can live fully to the potential God has created us to live in for his glory. So live in peace with God through faith. Secondly, Christians are to seek the fruit of faith. We'll break into this more in chapter 5 when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But he's going to get very practical about what it means to be justified by faith means to walk in the fruit of faith, to seek it and obey it. We're not off the hook to obey Christ or to live righteously. It's just simply the source of our righteousness isn't in obedience to the law, but in faith in Christ. And so, friends, this means that we would stop keeping a running tally in our heads of all your good deeds. They will not save you, and they mean nothing before God. Reject the gospel of works righteousness. Wherever you find it in your life and in your heart, resist all temptations to put yourself under the yoke of slavery to the law. Seek the fruit of faith. Your obedience, your righteousness, isn't because of an obedience to a text that you may earn salvation or keep yourself secure, but in humble submission to Christ who leads you. Seek the fruit of faith. And lastly, ultimately, look forward to the end of faith. What does it mean to live this life in the flesh in faith in the Son of God? It means to look forward to the end of our faith. That is when our faith becomes sight. No longer do we need to hope against hope, but we will believe and see because it is there in front of us. We will see Christ face to face. So looking forward to the end of faith means that we can walk diligently, confidently in this life because we know that one day faith will be made sight. 
And Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. But soon there will be a day when we see face to face all that we have believed and hoped for. So friends, in Christ, live in peace with God through Christ. Seek the fruit of faith and look forward to the end of faith where your faith will become sight. You do this on the ground of your justification by faith alone. Not because you've earned it or can keep yourself in it, but because Christ's death was not in vain, but secured for you your hope. To receive this truth, you simply believe on Christ, that his work was sufficient, his death atones, his resurrection affirms. God receives you by faith into the household of God, not by your own doing or merit, but by your faith in Christ. That's my prayer for you, that you would believe that and that we would walk in it together. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more to this doctrine that we have yet to uncover and know that we will in the next several chapters. And there's so many implications of this doctrine that if we get it wrong, it can really hurt and damage us. It might even damn us. But Lord, if we, if we get it right, which I, I think Paul it has it right, and we're teaching it rightly. The implications are so rewarding and so vast that we are free and liberated from the commands of men, and we don't have to perform and earn and merit, but all of that has been merited and performed for us by Christ. And so we are free to live fully alive instead of dead men trying to earn their life as they can. So, Father, we ask that you would Help us learn and continue to investigate the deep and beautiful truths of this doctrine, particularly this month as we celebrate the Reformation. But in your word, we would see the beauty of what it means to be justified by faith and not by works for your glory, that we may live joyfully obedient and obediently joyful lives for Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of is not in skill or name.